Hey, everybody. I got Gordon Kennedy on the show, um, and we definitely have some cool, um, fun stories to tell. And of course, multi-Grammy award-winning songwriter, producer, uh, written, produced for so many artists. We could take up the whole show just trying to list those. But uh, Don't waste their time, Jeff. <laughs> no. Uh, but we, uh, <laughs> you know, and of course, Gordon uh, played some killer guitar on uh, the Kingdom Come uh, cast recording on a really awesome uh, black gospel song that um, we'll talk about that too. But first of all, I want to say thanks, Gordon, coming from a fellow Brentwood Academy alum. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for having me, uh, Jeff. It's a pleasure to get to spend some time with you. Well, sure, man. So, I mean, you, you know, I, I love catching you whenever I can around town. Of course, not right, right now. Cause we're, we're, <laughs> you don't we're, want to catch anything around town right now for posterity's sake. When people listen to this years to come, we'll, we'll recall the day that we all had to stay inside forever. Um, yep. but, uh, it's a good chance for, for, for us to talk about music and make music. You were just talking a minute ago about, uh, getting in the, back in the studio with your your fellow bandmates to um right yeah the petty junkies we uh are a tom petty cover band it's myself jerry mcpherson brady seals blair masters lonnie wilson and mark hill and we've been doing for maybe about a year and a half now um just you know club club gigs we've traveled to marion illinois and cookbull and mostly stay around the nashville area go up to murfreesboro and hop springs out near woodbury but it it uh we kind of accidentally recorded about five songs during a rehearsal about a year ago and then we finished them in the studio and just thought man these things sound great we should make a a little disc or a thumb drive or something to make available at our gigs and since we're all kind of shut in right now we somebody suggested this morning hey why don't we finish that project so that's one thing they were going to do with our idle time right well are you are you guys doing it remote like everybody flying tracks in or are you guys getting together cool yeah i think it's going to start with lonnie doing the drums at his place which this ought to be interesting you know the drummer by himself well Um, he now he gets now he gets to define what everybody has to do (laughs) well follow me guys it's, it's almost like we got to play to the drummer there's a you know concept but i mean i think if he's we you know Live, we stay true to pretty much true to the arrangements and don't really divert greatly from anything. Do you guys do a heartbreakers and solo stuff? You just kind of do everything all the uh, Yeah, just cover any and all Tom Petty. Uh, we didn't, we haven't gotten into Mud Crutch or anything like that yet, but but we're doing you know Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Tom solo music. You know, the, we do all of the greatest hits of the Heartbreakers and then just some jewels from his catalog that you know, we'll throw in every once in a while, Hey, we'd love to do this. And so far, you know, we can't find a bad song. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, what was cool. I went and saw mud crutch. Oh gosh, maybe five years ago. And, uh, or maybe four years ago, five years ago. And I was wondering if he was going to do any heartbreakers or solo stuff. Not, he didn't do anything. They did not do as mud crutch that night at the rhyme. And, and about two thirds through the show, they launch into a cover of, Six days on the road, and I'm going to make it home tonight. It's wow. a uh, Dave Dudley hit that my father produced. <laughs> well, that's so I a, just, yeah, I wanted to raise my hand and go, hey, hey, hey. Well, that's a great place um, to start, talking about your dad, you know, growing up, watching your dad's career. I mean. Yeah. He, um, my dad is Jerry Kennedy. He's in the Musicians Hall of Fame and uh, got inducted with the Nashville A-team players yeah. back in 2007 when they first launched that hall of fame and museum joe chambers put together this wonderful uh place to tribute the you know the players and um so that year it was the funk brothers the wrecking crew the memphis boys oh. the nashville 18 players johnny cash's two and elvis's three that did his first recording session all went in at the same time well they, they should have just shut down the music hall of fame after that <laughs> well they, they could have stopped there and then we'll talk about it. that's one of the greatest shows i've ever seen in my life wow because they had the each you know of the band of you know those players that were going getting inducted on stage to play four or five of the records they had done and like just to give you an example of the kind of chills that were happening over and over and lightning striking over and over on stage that night Vince Gill walked out to sing Bridge Over Troubled Water with the Wrecking Crew wow. and as gorgeous as that sounded him singing that song you were fixated on Larry Nectel playing the piano because that's the guy that played the record mm. And so you, that was just what happened over and over and over and over again all night. Frampton did 
signed, sealed, delivered with the Funk Brothers, and we would ultimately do a session with those a bunch of those guys on his. Uh, uh, I think it was on the Thank You, Mr. Churchill record called The Invisible Man. There's a YouTube clip of the session we did, and I'm sitting between Peter Frampton and Eddie Willis, who is, you know, the guitar player on all of these Motown hits, right. and Bob Babbitt on bass, Robert keyboards, uh, Spider on drums. Mm. And we supplemented with Chad Cromwell and Eric Darkin to sort of round out the band that, that day and did this song called The Invisible Man, which Peter and I wrote as a tribute to the funk brothers anyway you can see that on you can see that on youtube it's really cool and which which year was this this was you know it has to be several years ago now um gosh it you know maybe i would have to go and and I would, I would, if I said right now, I could be telling a big story. Cause anytime I think something happened five years ago, it was eight. Yeah. Right. You know, so it might've been just around maybe 10, 11, somewhere in there, possibly. Uh, yeah. It'd be wrong. 12. I don't remember. Someone else is going to remember your memories better than you. So, well, you know, I, I back to my dad, I, you know, I, he, when he got inducted, Brenda Lee inducted him and she said, these seven guys, count for 130 over 130,000 recording sessions and so i recalled you know growing up driving the, the dad driving the family to gatlinburg or shreveport you know three hour trip or 10 hour trip the whole time reaching for the volume knob on the radio going i think i played on this turning it up you know and so sure enough i mean if you were to like dial in a classic country station on satellite radio now he's either produced or played you know, like maybe one out of every four songs they play and when and did when so did when did louisiana hayrides when was that uh he was doing that in the 50s the louisiana hayride um and in fact that's how he met my mother she was a singer and somebody had suggested, uh, you know, they were probably 17 years old or something that they do a duet together because my dad would perform and she would perform. And somebody said, why don't, don't y'all do a duet? They they got together and did a number uh, cover of who wears short shorts. That, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then somebody said, y'all need to do that again. It went over well. And then at some point they started going out, got married at 17, had me at 19 and then moved to Nashville and. When I was a year old, yeah, just a little over a year old, uh, give it a shot. Come to Nashville and stay, thankfully. And uh, Mercury Records president, yes, CEO, uh, whatever. In, so. in fact, um, the guy that talked my dad into moving to Nashville was a man named Shelby Singleton, who, you know, dad, had came, he came here on Shelby's request. You know, he needed to move to Nashville. And dad and mom and me as, you know, a one-year-old, and after I think it was two weeks, dad said he was ready to throw in the towel and go back to Shreveport. You know, things weren't happening fast enough, you know, two weeks. So he had made the decision with my mom to go back to Shreveport when Shelby Singleton returned from Chicago, where the home office of Mercury Records is, and said, hey, they want to open a Nashville office. They want me to run it. And I want you to be my number two guy, he said to my dad and offered him a job for, you know, 70 bucks a week. So dad was able to stay and he was playing sessions. And I think there's another key thing that happened early in my dad's session playing career that caused his phone to start ringing off the hook. And that was when Hank Garland had a car wreck of all things mm. it sort of, uh, put him on pause for a while. And so my dad started getting, you know, lots, lots of calls to come play. And so, uh, and then at some point I think maybe, 64 maybe he started uh he he became the head of mercury records and so the office was you know like guys like jerry reed and ray stevens were frequenting the office they were all working on projects together and dad signed roger miller to mercury records in 64 and of course they produced together uh or dad produced roger you know for for a while and had like 11 Grammys in two years or something. He produced wow. King of the Road and Dang Me, Chug Lug, England Swings, Kansas City Star, all those yeah. great rocker songs, you know. Um, and so he he was a producer 
And then at some point he became more of a producer and a player. You know, he would play on his own, the things he was producing, but he also had it in his contract. He could go work for Billy Sherrill at CBS records. So he played on all the Tammy and George, you know, stuff, all her Tammy Wynette's hits, stand by your man and all the records that great records she did that Billy produced. So he's, he stayed with uh, playing just a little bit, but mainly ran Mercury and produced the acts for Mercury, you know, for a number of years, for 21 years. Right. And so when, when did when did music kind of trickle down to you from him? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, you know, w- you know, we got guitars twice when I was growing up. You know, and the first time we got them, I think they, uh, it was, we were, Brian and I were so young that he couldn't even put it back in the case. He would try to put the butt into the guitar and the neck <laughs> into the case and get so frustrated. I mean, we were just too little, you know, to know. Although I was, always you know intrigued by and you know and always wanted to do what my dad did you know when i was a kid i would we would come home and walk in from the garage into the basement and there would be a slew of guitar cases an amp or two upright piano on the wall one end and then on another wall there was a i tell people my first record player was a seaberg 100 jukebox that had you know 45s in it and dad showed me how to turn that on and listen to the punch the numbers or the letters and the numbers and listen to all the records in there and and so that you know from the time i was probably five six seven years old i i'd close my eyes and listen to music and dream about doing that myself you know i would want to i want to do this i want to do what my dad's doing and then of course as i got older i started looking at the list of things my dad has done played on elvis and orbison and and Jerry, all this, all these massive, you know, records, uh, and think to myself, do I really want to do what my dad is doing? You know, cause that's a, that's a long shadow he's casting there. And, but I mean, you know, all's well that ends well and it's not ended, but I mean, I, it, at some point I looked over my shoulder and there's the whole cast of characters that like his Elvis, you know, for me, there's Clapton and Garth Brooks and Peter Frampton and Ricky Skaggs. And that's, it's just kind of continued. And right. Well, so, I mean, you're obviously your father, huge influence. And of course, I think I have a musical father as well. So that's obviously just like yeah. influence number one for a lot of us. But what other, yeah. what, as, as you're getting going before you, before you're getting Garth Brooks and all this stuff, you know, this yeah. great stuff. What was the. I didn't want to say the first pro thing, but what, what, when did it become like your oh, gig, sure. your job? Uh, well, I got a, you know, the second go around of acoustic guitars. I think maybe I was maybe more like nine years old. And uh, those guitars were these Decca acoustic guitars. And again, you know, we got these acoustic guitars from our father and those wound up in the closet with the GI Joe dolls and major Matt Masons and, and the BB guns or whatever and no cases. And, you know, they were just toys. And then I got to be about 11 years old and would visit our family down in Shreveport. And my cousin, Randy, who was about maybe four years older than me, he was playing the guitar and had a fun with guitar instruction book by Mel Bay. Mel Bay. Yes. And he gave me, it was, I mean, the cover had been torn off and the pages were all yellow and, so I took the book home and learned the first inversion chords, both major and minor chords, and threw the book away and thought, I know how to play the guitar now. And so, I, you know, I started messing around and getting a little more serious about playing along with songs. I was always putting the needle down on the records and learning things that way. But my dad gave me an electric guitar for Christmas when I was 15 years old, and that was the sort of no-going-back moment for me, a Fender Telecaster. There you go. And um, so... Two months later, I was playing on a talent show at Brentwood Academy, our alma mater, with Jerry Reed's daughter singing lead and Joe Mascao's son, Joey, playing drums. And we were sort of like, you know, there was a few second generation musicians, you know, in this little group that we were doing. That was two months after I'd gotten the electric guitar. And then so, again, I would think the next pivotal thing that happened for me was about a year later, a guy named Dan Huff came to Brentwood Academy and he is, as you know, yeah, not only one of the top producers in Nashville, but he is a world class guitar player. 
where there was a guy that was while in the midst of being like, you know, sports driven, like I was back in high school, there was Dan Huff, a peer of mine reminding me that I need to stay focused. If I want to keep up with him, I had to sort of get it in gear, so to speak. And so that was a critical thing for me was going to school with him and being in a little, you know, we put our little combo groups together and play dances or assemblies and all these things at BA. And then, you know, we work together, you know, all these decades later, we'll, we, you know, he's hired me to come play on stuff he's producing and just, I love the guy. We're dear friends all these years later, but he was a critical thing for me um, as a player. And then I would say Wayne Kirkpatrick as a songwriter, you know, at some point was the guy that made me have to sort of get it in gear once again in the craft of songwriting. So you may want to get to that at some point when we're talking. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of Wayne, I mean, is uh, how early on did you connect? Uh, oh God. Well, I would. I had already been in uh, Whiteheart, um, which, by the way, I, you know, Dan Huff called me in the summer of '84 and asked me if I would sub for him. He was the guitarist in Whiteheart. Would I sub for him for three shows that summer so he could go to L.A. to play some sessions? And I quit the band six years later <laughs> he never came back yeah and at some point during those years we would sort of play the same festival here and there with michael w smith and they're on keyboards and part-time guitar was wayne kirkpatrick and so that's the first time i was aware of him but then we started working together when he co-produced a record with brown banister on kim hill they had me come and play and and then he would get the uh the opportunity to produce Susan Ashton's first album for Sparrow. And because we had worked together on the Kim Hill thing, he called me one day and said, do you have a gut string? And I said, yeah. He said, can you, can you bring that? I want you to do a solo on this song. And do you have a Dobro? I said, well, I've got my father's Dobro. It's a fretted Dobro. And, uh, it's one he used on Harper Valley PTA and all these records. I said, let me get that. And so I went down to do these two small guitar parts for Wayne and then, two weeks later finished all the guitar work on the record. We just, he and I stayed in the studio at his place for two weeks, just the two of us. And so we were getting to know each other, becoming friends. And then at, at some point real soon, we said we should write together. And that was the start of something really, really uh, wonderful, you know, uh, that relationship and friendship all these years later, which is the best. But out of that, you know, sprang forth this, you know, this writing thing where, you know, We've been doing that since about 1991. And the last song we wrote together in the last couple of years, because he's been busy doing the Broadway thing, but the last song we wrote together was Bonnie Raitt's last single. So when we wow. still get together and purpose to write things, you know, we still... Something comes out. Writing. Something yeah, good comes do. out. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's Did right. you, when you were, uh, you know, dur during the White Heart years and, and beyond, uh, were you already kind of mostly out on the road and writing was something you were doing when you had time or did you start to gravitate? Hey, I want to be more kind of multi, you know, fast. Mm -hmm. Some guys just hit the road and they're road guys. Some guys sit and write and some guys just produce and some guys do it all. So did you try to balance yeah. everything or were you like, yeah, I think Jeff that, um, you know, early on I wanted to be a guitar picker like my dad, but then I saw that he did other things. So there was always that in the back of my mind that, you know, there are other things that can uh, sort of, you know, just, sort, you know, be part of being a guitar player. And But, I mean, I've known guys and people all my life who are just want to be the guitar player. But but I think when I, um, when I started writing songs, that was the first time for me that I realized this is sort of the nucleus of what I want to do because if you think about it, if you write songs and you do demos of your songs, so you're playing, you're producing, you're singing. And then so I, what I'm saying is by virtue of the fact that you write a song, you get an opportunity to do everything else you know how to do. Yeah. And then sometimes that causes other people like a Ricky Skaggs to go, I want to do these just like you did your demos. Will you come produce the record with me? So the songwriting thing for me which if you you know and, and i agree with what nashville 
uh, Songwriters Association, NSAI, say that it all begins with a song. I truly believe that. Um, my favorite guitar players growing up over the years have been people that just play the right thing for the song. So the song is sort of, you know, the the indicator of what should happen. And I, you know, there were times in my life when I was first starting to write songs where I was still wanting to be the guitar player and I'd come up with some guitar part and think I'd sling a song around that so I could play that part. And that was the reason I was writing that song and that was wrong, you know? So I wrote a lot of songs that sort of backwards, you know, that way and don't like those songs as much as, as what I write all these years later when I learned, you know, how to do it properly. And so now, you know, it's a, it's a song driven thing for me. And again, if I write a song, I'm going to get to do everything else I know how to do. And it might just be in my own studio, but sometimes it escapes there and winds up being with a Peter Frampton or a Garth or somebody, you know, who wants me to come and do that thing. You know, Winona said about change the world. I want you to come sing those same harmony parts that you did on the demo. So I did that, you know. Well, speaking of change the world, because I, I, yeah. I love the different iterations of that song. Because uh, this was what, late 90s? Um, um, yeah, and I, that, that record came out with Clapton in late 96. 96, yeah. I was, mm-hmm. in, I was in Texas by then, but a friend of mine was, was uh, Winona's keyboard player and right around the time that she was cutting that. Yeah. Uh, and so that was actually the first time I heard the song. I'm like, Man, this is cool. It was like a Beatles song. It was like, because um, yeah. it had a lot of those cool, you know, and the way they did stuff. And then, then Clapton came out with that thing, which was obviously, yep. like you said, begins with a song. The song yep. is there, but it's like listening to, it was like listening to other people do Beatles songs. It was just like, wow, the song, yeah. it, I can't yeah. tell which one I like better. Well, well, yeah. And it's sometimes I think, you know, you know, it's a good song when it would be harder to ruin it <laughs> than, than to improve it. You know, if it's, it's interesting, all the versions I've heard of just that song. I mean, um, well, that was a, jazz, you know, and that trio, was, yeah, ninety six. Yeah, I mean it, it. I mean, so I mean, you, you're already well established in there, but I mean that that definitely, obviously, was a was a huge, huge moment. Yeah, I mean, for for we talk about it, Wayne and Tommy. You know, we talk about being three guys in Nashville and going to the Grammys, and knowing and feeling, you know, in our bones that there's no way they're going to give this song of the year to three Nashville guys because at that point in the thirty eight previous years. They'd only given the song of the year to Nashville writers once. Wow. So in the 39th year was the, the second time they gave it to Nashville writers. And, you know, it, it's just one of those things where in the life lesson part of the story to me, you know, I was writing songs for years that nobody in Nashville was going to hear except for a guy named Doug Howard who worked in the tape copy room who would cut <laughs> my songs into the catalog, you know, and yeah. he would, he would jump around the room playing air guitar and Chuck Berry duck walk the whole thing to my song. And I'm sitting there enjoying the fact that he is enjoying it, but knowing nobody else is going to hear it because it's, I wasn't writing what Nashville was writing at the time. And, but then he would go away a year before I left that publishing company, he would go away to get a law degree in Washington, D.C. to add to his master's from Vanderbilt and his degree from Belmont. This is the guy in the tape copy room at Polygram Music, right? Yeah. So he goes away, and then the Nashville office gets kind of turned upside down. They let go the guy that's running the place, and they're without a permanent, you know, head boss guy for, you know, like a year and a half or something. And then I get a call from Doug Howard, saying he's coming back to run the nashville office and so i won't go into all the details about how all that happened but it was pretty miraculous that you know the way it happened at least to me he went from the tape copy room to being the head of the office yeah wow while he was gone your biggest fan (laughs) and so he comes back and calls me and on the way back to nashville he doesn't even get back to nashville he calls me on his way back says what are you doing are you writing for anybody i said no well, I want you back over to Polygram because I like what you do. And remember the air guitar in the tape copy room. <laughs> so the first song I turn into him is change the world. Wow. You know? And so we, he and I look back on that and we like each other mighty fine these days that we, <laughs> yeah. that was, that was the first 
our first song to publish together. And, and so, um, but I mean, it's just, that's the, again, the life lesson. Um, a, a lot of times, you know, you think you're failing at something when it's just a, a timing thing and, and maybe the gestation period, as in the case of change the world was almost five years before we saw what we thought we were trying to do with it, not happen you know, twice, there were two different times where we thought something was going to happen, happen with that song, including Winona saying she was going to single the song and then the label telling her the radio would never play that song. Did you, did you, uh, was, uh, do you a lot of times, I mean, obviously in writing, you, you write whatever happens, but was this song written with somebody in mind from the start when you guys got together or Uh, Wayne and I were, we were putting together a little group and we had Chris McHugh and Tommy Sims in the studio with us and we were trying to, you know, get a record deal. And so we were cutting these songs that the label in New York that had us on hold for a year would say to us, we could get you a number one alternative hit out of these songs, but give us a pop hit. So change the world happened to be an effort, sort of a last ditch effort. In fact, at the end of that year long, you know, dev- developmental period with that label in New York to try to get that deal. Here's the pop hit you've been asking for. And it's a demo I did with just Tommy and sent it to the guy in New York who finally, after a year gave us a final answer and said he was going to pass that. He just didn't hear the hit, you know, hmm. Then uh, the next thing that we would see happen was Winona recording the song and being told it was going to be a single and then watching her put out one, then two, then three singles that weren't changed the world. And finally seeing her producer on Music Row, Tony Brown came up to me one day and said, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you, but the label says they're not going to release that that song. And so that was the two times where we walked away going, shoot, you know, we failed, we failed. And, and then... You know, I when I had turned that song into Doug in February of '93, can you get this to, to Clapton? Because he had just done Tears in Heaven, and uh, that and he said, "Well, we'll see what we can do." Well, that's not how it happened. They got it to Winona, but it's funny. In the summer of '96, I'm sitting in the studio with Tommy Sims working on a Nicole Smith record and just on some downtime, he looks over me and says, GK, listen, by the way, we're getting another cut on change the world. I said, who? He said, Eric Clapton. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, I I know I stared at him for about two minutes, you know, and then it happened, you know. So, um, did you have anything to do with uh, anything at all with that production or did you just, no, 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 no. That was uh baby face. Yeah. yeah. Well, the way it happened was Tony Brown was visited, uh, by Kathy Nelson, who, if you ever watched the, like Jerry Bruckheimer blockbuster films, a lot of touchstone pictures and, and stuff. She would be the music supervisor in all of these films, music supervisor, Kathy Nelson. And she was, she knew Tony Brown and visited his office sometime. I don't know when 92, 93, well, 93 or 94, maybe, I don't know. And he said, check out this song. I'm gonna cut on Winona. And then plays her the demo that Tommy and I did have changed the world. Well, I don't know if it's a year or two or whatever goes by. She's casting music for the film Phenomenon, and she gets to this scene and says, oh, my gosh, what's that song Tony played for me in his office? And so she reached out, tried to get the demo of the song. She gave it to Robbie Robertson, who was going to exec produce the soundtrack record, who called Clapton and Babyface. My understanding is the question to Clapton was, would you want to do a song for the soundtrack for, you know, for this film? And he said, sure. He, I mean, he heard the song. I've got a video of him somewhere, you know, saying, heard the composition and said, sure, I'd love to do this. Uh, my understanding is that when Robbie Robertson called Babyface, he said, would you want to produce Eric Clapton, a song on Eric for our soundtrack? Yes. Would you produce a song you didn't write? And he said, he froze and i think about 10 seconds went by before saying yes so that's how the record came about wow 
Well, I, I definitely – I mean, back back in that day, in 96, back in the day, uh, yeah. I, I I used to watch live TV, and I remember watching the Grammys live. Now it's you either record it or you have to find it on YouTube just because, I mean, we all have our own schedule. But I remember that being yeah. such a huge – I mean, so much – I was just hopping around the world at that time as a kid, but right. but I, I loved what you guys said when you got up there to say your receive your awards. I was like, wow, they, that was that yeah. was great. I'm glad you yeah. did, did that did that, and um, uh, and of course that was just the n- next phase, as you said. You continued. To- yeah, I mean that that definitely changed the uh, opportunities that came our way, and it was funny because the three of us writers saw that what was happening would change the world that we said to each other at some point we should write a second song together and so we ended up writing i think 11 tunes together and nine of them got recorded wow. so i've always maintained that the three dumbest guys in town are me and wayne and tommy not writing together <laughs> right but everybody you know goes and has answers the different bells that are ringing for them and and so we got together you know as often as we could. And, and that was a, a great season of life. Well, and speaking of season life, uh, you know, the season that my dad and I are entered doing this thing. And so he gave you a call just to segue mm-hmm. into you kept playing it, just playing it on this track. And, um, and what I think is awesome, not, not only awesome, but your playing is great, but you're playing the pretty woman guitar. Yeah. Talk about that. You know, well, I, I first of all, I, I break out the vintage for my closest and dearest friends. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was telling Larry Stewart that the other day, and he, I had produced his newest album, which came out, I guess, a year ago or so. And, uh, and it just this past week bothered to mention to him that some of the overdubs I had done on his record were done with that guitar. And he was like, What? Wait, what? You know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's it's a 1961 gibson es 335 cherry red neck um guitar that he bought from hughley's music down in nashville when it was new and just some interesting little fun facts about the guitar when it was new it had a bigsby tremolo on it he would soon be approached by a local guitarist slash tinkerer guy named dean porter who said to my dad and another guitar player named Grady Martin, who were both playing Gibsons, I can take those Bigsby's off your guitars and put some levers on there, custom-made levers on there, so that you could emulate pedal steel licks. So wow. he put three levers on Grady's, but two on my dad's, which the first lever under the elbow lowers the high E string a whole step. So it goes like that. That's cool. And then wow. the B string palm lever goes up a step and back so you can get some and you can hear grady using that for just a well-known song people would be familiar with listen to grady implement uh he'll use that um b bender in the solo for elvis's devil in disguise okay he does a little well well he does the hits that thing twice that's so he's pushing that little lever there to make that okay so, so anyway, but dad has that guitar and that's his, like, becomes his baby and his main guitar. He used on countless, countless, countless records, including Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, Elvis Presley, Good Luck Charm, Stand By Your Man, Tammy Wynette, uh, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, double album, Ringo Starr's second solo album, Bukusa Blues. Yeah. And just on and on, Charlie Rich records. And like I said, I've, I'm just seeing my dad reaching for the volume knob going, I think I played on this. I mean, it's, it's too many to, to count. So, but at some point he, like I said, he, you know, was producing more and playing less. And then I think in 1988, when Whiteheart was doing the freedom album, I asked him, can I take this guitar and use it on some songs on this record? Because we were working with producer Brown Bannister and, just the sheer joy of just spending time with him and Jeff Balding at the console and doing the guitar parts on that record and tracking with Chris and Tommy 
just as a trio, we would do the basic tracks, just the three of us. And, but I brought that guitar and did some, some songs on the record with that guitar and just kind of started easing it more into regular use myself since my dad wasn't using it. He didn't mind me taking it. So between that 335 and my Telecaster that I got when I was 15, those were probably predominantly the guitars I used. I would say on about 90% of the recordings I played on for 10 or 15 years. Do you still have that telly? Oh yeah. It's on its third finish. I mean, it keeps looking at me like, when are we going to stop this? (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's, I still have that guitar. It's got a Joe Glazer B bender in it. And, um, so I've used that. That's on Susan Ashton's first, you know, album and, that guitar got used a lot uh, as well as the 335 and so kind of gear used, gear yeah. nerd stuff like what what what's your favorite amp matchup with both of those guitars like well you know through the whiteheart years i was using mesa boogie and marshall amps and then when i started doing sessions like the first susan ashen record i did with my mesa boogie mark ii b combo that i bought on payments you know i got a loan from the bank when i was in belmont college to go and buy this amplifier so i was using that through the whiteheart years but i was using it on some sessions like susan's first solo record it's on the whiteheart freedom album as well as a marshall amp splitting duties with those two amps but um and then i got a vox amplifier that i was using on like susan ashton's second solo record so like an ac30 or is it ac30 yeah and then um like mid sixties or early sixties, AC 30. But then in 1992, in the spring of 92, I bought brand new ordered from Mark Sampson, who was running a new company called matchless. Yeah. And he built me a head and a two twelve cabinet. He built them in his house. And that amp is my studio. It's the, the amp for me all these years since 1992 through now that's the main amp for me over the years and um i I mean i've used other amps you know i've I've collected other amps over the years and you know so through the years i've you know had like uh you know the 59 baseman the uh, 64 jtm 45 marshall and a 68 50 watt top with matching 412 you know um Boogie amps, uh, Vox AC30, uh, and a ton of Fender Tweed amps and stuff like that. But if I plug that matchless amp in first, I won't try anything else. It just works on everything for me. And I've bought new matchless amps to use on the Garth Brooks tour last year, and they sound great. Uh, Phil Jameson is still, they still make wonderful amps, but there's something very special about that one I bought in 92 that just nothing sounds like it. So that's a, like a main thing for me since and do 92. You, do you record? I mean, do you ever not use an amp or, or do you think that oh, that's just part uh, of the sound you got to have when you track, even like remote tracks and stuff? Well, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the thing I did for your dad, I think I might've recorded my guitars direct. I believe you did. I wanted to do like a Motown thing. And, you know, I just got to visit the studio Motown February the 21st, I believe, this year. We went up to do the Play the Dome in Detroit. But the day before, they offered a little private tour for anybody. So about 10 of us went over there and did the private tour through the the studio. The tracks you sent me had such a warmth to it that it must have been your DI that just had such a great, you know, I've been... Wondering. It was a Neve. It's a Neve preamp and uh, an 1176 there you compressor, go. and then just direct. That. Yeah, just direct. So that's I've how been, I did I've that been, in my dad's 335. I've been thinking about that Acme, you know, that Motown thing that I've seen around you. Know, that little green it's box. It's called the Wolf. The Wolf something. Uh, yeah, I don't. What's it? It called? has a name like that. Um, but anyway, yes, I've tried one of those, and they're cool sounding. Yeah, they are good sounding. Very well, cool. Yeah, it, it was awesome. Thank you. You you really got the idea because it was a gospel Motowny thing, and and the the chanks were one thing. You know, the rolling <laughs> kind of rhythm thing. Um, yeah, 
that and, and then sort of like a line, you know, that I didn't even think of because I think I just called and said, Hey man, just put some chanks on there, you know. And then yeah. you said, well, What about this thing? And you you're really kind of when we talked on the phone for a minute, you you started to getting f- philosophical about it. You're saying, you know, this is what they did, and you know, and let's do that. Yeah. And I said, Man, exactly. It was it's like I love it when musicians think about music beyond the well, the notes of it. Your, knowing your dad's roots and uh you know your uncle took me to see standing in the shadows of motown yeah he thought he thought i would want to see that movie and he was correct so but yeah that i have to say hats off to the motown guitar players because that's the approach they would take they would three guys would go over and work out their parts and then play them through the same piece of gear, which was this box this guy made. You know, if you walk into the Motown studio, it's so small that if they had had any guitar amps in there, it would not have worked. Yeah. And so they ran their guitars. Everything went direct into this machine and this box that this guy built for them. And and thank and goodness so, that, that, you know, because you, you listen to them talk about direct and then the Beatles all getting in trouble for going to direct because Abbey Road was so strict about the the levels but the Beatles wanted that Motown sound which was slightly you know getting to the red you know it was really kind of yeah oh yeah and and yeah definitely uh McCartney was trying to get that bass sound that they had on the Motown records and at some point they they achieved great bass tones but early on they didn't they were not good and so I've got some of the Pro Tools sessions now, some of those old records, and try to dig. You're trying to hear the bass on some of the records. It's laughable how the, how it sounds, but um, yeah, but they got it right. At some point, they got it way right. I, I and, think uh, they're okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, what do you what do you got? Right. What's what's you know sneak peek about what's happening in your foreseeable future? Well, uh, there are two films that have sort of fallen under my plate to work on music for, and one of them involves working with Ricky Skaggs and. Mark Gersmel from the Whiteheart days of, oh. of all people. Um, it's a, it's, I'd say a faith-based film, um, a, but also about the history of the birth of our nation. So, cool. I, you know, that's I won't go into any more details about that because I'm not sure I would have them all right. I'm about halfway through reading the script, but they want to lean on us for everything. Uh, from music that sounds like it could be from that period, which Ricky kind of could just, you know, bleeds that. And then um, something a little more modern sounding, um, but still tones that are a little more, uh, more ancient, you know, which I think, you know, Ricky provides that just, he can do it without thinking about it. Just what comes out of him is, is that from Ireland or is that from the mountains? Is that from it just, oozes out of him and so that's going to be a fun project and then i just did a thing with uh you know chris harris um, yeah he's on this yeah, project we, too you know well we just oh okay um i love working with him and, and him and his wife we've done some traveling together and performing just they're kind of like these traveling minstrels you know and yeah and, I, and there's, I an, there's another guy i can't wait to just i mean just we spent half the time in the studio just talking about you know, Texas and the music and the history of this, that, and the other. And I'm like, are we going to sing well, get, yet? <laughs> get, get him to tell you about beautiful Jim Key. It's a, it's a true story about a horse, the turn of the 20th century that was like, became the biggest celebrity in the country. And so we just wrote a song about that and about that horse. And that was a wow. fun thing. He was just, he was just in my studio the end of this past week and they're going to be back he and his wife both will be back here wednesday to do some vocals you know um so there's little projects like that and the petty junkies thing that kind of keep happening um and then of course right now for garth brooks and the stadiums tour he hadn't he didn't book a show in march or april which it could end up being a blessing the next shows are booked for may Mm, and there are three stadium shows in may so It'd be great if by then everything is back to normal and people can proceed. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. But as for right now, though, he hasn't had to cancel anything just uh-huh. because he hadn't. And he probably normally would have tried to like book some dive bar shows that you know he he does these uh, because he had a single out last year called Dive Bar. We yeah. went out and played Joe's Bar in Chicago and Bakersfield. Uh, the 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 what's it Crystal Palace Buck Owens Crystal Palace and cool. Cool. Um, 
and then the, you know green hall texas you know the original dive bar down there outside of san antonio so he would probably be peppering our schedule with those little dates but he's not adding any of those because of the situation that's going on right now with this everybody staying in but so those are you know other than that i've thought about you know restringing some guitars <laughs> yeah but i, I mean I've, I've actually just it's sort of like the one thing that hasn't changed for me during this downtime is that i just have to pick up a guitar every day i just have to do it so i find myself you know still gravitating towards picking up an instrument and i told my wife yesterday that i woke up yesterday with a song that i immediately had a lyric idea for and started putting the words down when i woke up yesterday and it may be that my mind will sort of get back into that uh, it's like a it's like a river that's flowing to me it's flowing you have to jump in it and so with all this downtime i think maybe i'll probably end up doing a little more writing and being able to focus on that because it's like a vein you tap into you know mm. but once you walk out once you walk away from it to go do that gig or get on the plane to fly there to do that show or this tv thing and we went to dc two weeks ago with garth to do the gershwin prize awards and and that stuff takes your mind elsewhere. But if you're sitting around the house for a week, all of a sudden I'm recording little bits and waking up thinking about lyrics and putting them down. So it's like, wait a minute, my mind may be easing into that gear at the moment. And it's a good thing. Yeah. So, uh, a, a bad thing is, is redeemed to be a good thing. So let's, yeah. let's hope. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that it's always, it's good for all of us, the whole world for that matter to hit the pause button and then sort of reflect on what we're all about. And, you know, it's like, and again, I'll quote your uncle here, Scotty Smith. He said, he said, you know, there's times in your life when you're going to get shaken he said this after the 98 tornado, by the mm. way. Wow. There are times where you're going to get shaken. He said there might even come a time in your life where everything in your life gets shaken all at once. And maybe in such a way that the only thing that can't be shaken is, is the only thing that will remain standing. Is the only thing, that can, whatever it is, that can't be shaken. And everybody needs to know what that is. And that's probably what a lot of people are thinking about right now. I hear it. Yep. Yep. So that would be a good thing for people to... Uh, to think about that and and decide what is that you know well man i i want to go out on that that was a that was a great great thought and this was great having having you chat man i could thank you Jeff. sit here if i, if I didn't run out of tea or water i'd have to get up and go get some i'll lose my voice here. <laughs> that's the yeah. problem with me is that i sing you know four nights a week so i'm not doing anything at the moment so i'm kind of like a little out of, yeah. out of i need to start getting back online and doing some shows or something but uh thank yep, you keep using your muscles keep yeah using that's right. your muscle gotta yeah. keep doing it well hey thank you gordon i appreciate yeah, it yeah. so much and I, I hope we get to see each other live you know, in the oh, person and, and do some yeah. do some music together again. Be sweet. There are times when sitting still just won't do it. There are times when silence just can't say the way that I feel. Holy righteous Father who created us all And He constantly amazes my soul With the things that He does to prove His love is real
He keeps us all in his hands. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Just won't do it 